This week, I was super fortunate to spend time with Ruth Hatherley, who shares how she turned her back on her safe career of 20 years in finance and invested her life savings to create and develop MoneyCatcher, a blockchain tech solution designed to create a more efficient home loan process. We're talking cutting the process down from 42 days to 90 minutes. Ruth explains how her upbringing in rural Esperance instilled the values of family, community and transparency upon which her company and solution are built and are core to its success. Ruth brilliantly breaks down the complexity of what she's doing for everyone to understand. And from this, it becomes abundantly clear very quickly the scale of the impact Money Catcher is in the process of delivering in Australia and beyond. Ruth goes deep on the human journey behind creating Money Catcher, sharing the events and the decision-making process that went on behind the scenes, how she's had to reframe her identity to that of a CEO of a global tech company, as well as the humility required to expand and learn at a rate required to drive Money Catcher's progress. Ruth also speaks about being present and managing conflicting priorities, especially as she's a single mum as well as a need to create mental space and clarity through meditation, which is part of her own personal success habits. You will be immediately drawn in by Ruth's super focus and speed of thought and energy, which all spring from having a very clear why in her life. So enjoy, Ruth. Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. Taking massive action on an idea, focusing on making a huge impact for the good of the lives of everyday Western Australians and disrupting an age-old institution in the process is where we're going with today's guest, Ruth Hatherley. Ruth, welcome to the show. Thank you. One of the questions I always ask my guests right at the start, because it's called WA Real, is about their relationship with WA. So you grew up down in Esperance, that's correct, until the age of 12, and then you went to a boarding school, Mm -hmm. much like myself. Um... Tell me, what are some of your fondest memories of, of, of growing up in Western Australia and how's that shaped you? Yeah, it's a really good question, actually. Um, I have so many fond memories of Esperance. It was such a wonderful farming community and, and small community um, uh, in the country. Um, I grew up in a reasonably large family. So my direct family, I only have, um, I had two brothers or two siblings, um, but uh, we have we are part of uh, 21 cousins in one direct family wow. um, and I think at last count those 21 have had 45 or, or something crazy like that Great. yeah so a lot of us uh, grew up on farms that were in and around that sort of farming wheat area mm-hmm. and um, and community was a massive part of my life from the very very um, outset and so I think that that's one of the biggest themes that I've taken through life is being able to feel like I'm contributing to a community and that the community is positive and and sort of uplifting because that's what it was like for me growing up in the country. Um, And if you sort of fast forward that, um, most of us that were living down in the Esperance region that we in my family got sent to boarding school. and what well, I say got sent, we, we, we <laughs> you get a choice? yeah, well, it was kind of collaborative. Um, but once yeah. you were there, you Mine had to wasn't. stay. <laughs> um, and so, uh, that was something that whilst I was in the experience was quite difficult emotionally, I think, um, at such a young age, age 12 and being 800 Ks away, a 10 hour bus ride, you know, um, at best, um, 
so I learned to create a new community really quickly as well in, in, time, in terms of the boarding school community and, and the broader community of the people that we hung around with. Um, and that was a massive, massive life lesson for me that I only learnt um, retrospectively many, many years later. Um, and I think that a lot of that um, has really set the foundation of how I would like to create a company going forward if I get to start from scratch. Um, what are the, what's the culture, what's the values, what type of feel do I want to have and what kind of difference do I want to make to certain people? And I think that I can strongly link that back to where I grew up from and how I was raised here in WA. Because mm, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, we'll get into Money Catcher uh, in more detail in, in a bit, um, but there's a strong sense as I look through your story and I've listened to you talk before about um, really wanting to make that big difference to how Australians realise their dream financially in this case through you know, home buying uh, and disrupt you know an age-old institution in, in the same thing so I was really interested in where that why in the Ruth story yeah. and where that comes from. I think for me it's really the the why is is there's two kind of themes I think for me one is around trust and transparency and that's just been a huge moral um stake in the ground for me for it's been a really grounding attribute that I've had in my family is it's just a, a value that we hold very very um, dear and when you keep moving through communities and through life and I just found that was something I really wanted to see people lead with and be able to be part of an environment that was that I felt was transparent and I felt that it was honest um, and then the other part is around, absolutely, I, I, I joke that um, I spent 20 years figuring out what I really wanted to do. I never thought that I was <laughs> um, going to stay in finance, the financial services industry. Money isn't a huge driver for me. Um, it, in fact, it's, um, it, it's absolutely not a driver for me. And, and counting money and, and that whole profitability side of, of financial institutions wasn't what kept me there. What was, was when I realized that finance was actually an enabler to help people achieve their dreams that's the bit I was like I can help with that I yes. can I can connect the dream to the capability that money can provide mm. um, and we can help coach people to get the right outcome uh, by presenting themselves in the best financial sort of um, lens or, or, or yes. position um, and so that was those two themes when I started seeing that the more that technology started integrating with the financial services sector and the more capabilities that were being driven by technology, it was absolutely not correlating with the experience for the customer. And in fact, the ability for them to achieve their dreams was getting harder and harder. Um, yeah. And it wasn't just a pain for the customer to go through that process. As a staff member and the internal experience was just as awful as it was for the external experience. Right. And so that, that really ate away at me um, probably for the significantly for the last decade in my, in, in my career. I, thought, I really thought moving from a corporate banking environment to a, an aggregator space or a broking space where we could help, I, I kind of say it's like an air traffic controller, we were able to help the client and direct them in places where a bank could be better or worse than another one um, or more suitable for their needs. Uh, and then I realized that no one bank was doing it any better than any other. And on top of that, there was this veil of lack of trust of transparency. And so what from the customer, I think from everywhere in everywhere. the ecosystem. So if you talk about the customer, the, the bank 
banks found it difficult to get enough evidence to be able to trust the customer's word. The customer found it difficult to trust the promises that were, you know, the under-promising and over-promising and under-delivering. Uh, and then you layer that with regulators starting to sort of scratch at the service and and a bit concerned about the output of those first two things. Um, and then I think that that was just starting to... I, I noticed it back in 2000 and sort of 14, 15 really start to, to snowball and accelerate. And, and that's when I was motivated to do something about mm. it. What did that frustration actually look and feel like? Yeah, it just felt, um, I, I felt helpless. I felt that I was in the process. We had a, the, the, the mortgage broking company I worked with or that I was a partner in, we had a, a, a loan book at one stage that was over a billion dollars and we were servicing a hundred customers a month. So to be able to not service a hundred people a month efficiently and and make their whole experience of buying a home a wow factor it's the biggest potentially the yeah. biggest transaction they were going to go through and many of the clients out of our control were not having a an optimal experience um, and and so I just that that feeling for me was it, it was frustration. But then it was just, I was bewildered at the fact, the thing that really confused me was there was so much technology and that wasn't resulting in improvement. And I just, I don't yeah. have a technical background. So yes. for me, and... and but my, I'm sure coming from like a farming background whereby if you, you know, if you can put a new piece of kit on a tractor and it does something more efficiently, then bang, you can see it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So why wouldn't you do it? And if it's, and, and I'm without generalizing but farmers are really practical mm. so it's like well if that's not working let's try this yeah. if that, and if if it doesn't work then you've got to make it work because you, you you know you've got to look after your animals you've got to um harvest your crop you've you've got to make your money off the land and there exactly. isn't an alternative yes um and the margins are quite low you know when you're struggling as a as a farmer and so i think that yeah, sort of realizing that there was more efficiencies and capabilities and a better way to do it but not being able to do something about it was I was like, I'll just give it a crack, have a go. <laughs> mm. So in 2015, you um, left a 20-year-old safe career. I say safe because, you know, you've got the track record. Like most of us, you know, you get to 40, you know what you're doing. You're probably earning some decent money. Mortgage is attached to it. Um, you're a single mum, all, all of that. And then you decide to chuck in your life savings, leave the career and go full on in with no tech background high responsibility in the background. Talk me up to that decision yeah. point. Sounds crazy when it's played back to you, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, look, for me, um, I had a number of really key influences in, in that really early period. Mm. Um, and I do say that one of potentially the um, reasons that I did go as far as what I did is because I don't have a technical background. So mm -hmm. um, I really believed... Um, that quite simplistically, but it, it was absolutely a true statement that everything needed to solve this problem existed in the world today. Mm. Um, the technology, we didn't create anything 100% brand new, but yep. the way that we stitched it together is, you know, it's, it's, we've got a patent lodged against it and an international patent search proved that it was inventive and creative and novel. Mm. But it needed somebody to be brave enough to decide to just stitch it all together and go to market and challenge the current um, construct of the way and the lens in which we looked at this problem. Mm. And just for the listener who's on the other side of this, what is the problem you were solving? 
Yeah, we solve um, two problems, two main problems, and I didn't realize they were linked in the beginning. So the initial problem that I wanted to solve was um, I have an ideal uh, um, uh, world uh, and, and the problem. So the ideal world for me is that if you are wanting to buy a property, you should be able to walk into that property and whilst you're looking around and deciding what you want there's enough intelligence in this world that you should be able to make a decision that day and move in the next week and that so this is, information yeah, exists online well, it's approved you should approved. be able to you should be able to, the same as you want to buy a car the same processes are gone through. We need to identify that you are who you say you are. The asset is as it says that it is to be traded upon. It's valued in an agreed amount that we all decide upon. You can financially afford to service that debt. The asset is an, a type of asset that the institution wants to lend against. We need to sign some documents and then you can have that asset. Yeah. That That's a really simple way of looking at it, but it's that process is generic. Posts. And parameters. Yeah, it. yeah. And and th this is taking how long on average? In this country and in many jurisdictions around the world, it's on average 42 days cool. from submission to settlement. But the more alarming stat for me is that 60% um, of those loan applications are reworked and they're reworked between 9 and 11 times. So if you're a consumer, a friend of mine said to me the other day, which I thought it was a great um, as saying, he summarized it by saying that when you go for a home loan, you actually are taking on an additional part-time job to yeah. be able to get yourself from submission to settlement. And I thought that was a really eloquent um, way to put it. You're, the amount of, if you're talking about 60% of deals being reworked and they're reworked between nine and 11 times, how many times do you as a consumer get disappointed that what you thought was going to happen has not happened and you yeah. need to do another piece of, piece of work to enable to get your own application forward? Um, and that's what I wanted. That's the problem I wanted to solve. That that stat in itself, the 42 days from submission to settlement, and the 60% of deals reworked between nine and 11 mm. times. Um, that shouldn't happen with the with the capabilities that we have in technology today, and where the world is going with comprehensive yeah. credit reporting and open banking. And just the demand for things to be now. You know, yeah. it's part of it's shit. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, there should be no so what's reason. What's your why. target? What's your target time that you're aiming towards? We, in our test environment for a refinance from one, uh, what we call PEXA enabled. So PEXA is a, a digital platform that has been legislated as of um, 1st of August uh, last last year that all refinances and singles um, property settlements go through on that platform. So if we make an assumption that two banks involved in a refinance are PEXA enabled, um, in our test environment, that can happen in 90 minutes. So the thing that stands in the it's way of that, oh my days. goodness, but, but if you decide today that you don't want to bank with a certain bank anymore for your mortgage, you should be able to wake up tomorrow and be with the new bank. There is no reason why that can't happen. Um, and so that's really what, what we, that's our, our ideal uh, time frame. In terms of purchases, it's a little more complicated. Um, the time, the test environment is exactly the same, but then when you look at adding in conveyances and the ability to be able to exchange mortgage and exchange property, um, we would love to get that down from 42 days to five for any client going through a purchase of an application, of a, of a home loan. Because mm. just think about impact on the economy of speeding up those transactions yeah yeah and imagine imagine how much more work can be done imagine how how you would be able to drive competition for you know removalists and conveyances and real mm. estate agents and and so the the 
the exponential effect that that would have on peripheral services in the ecosystem um, is significant. Hmm. You said there's two things that you're fixing. Yeah. Um, so what we realized uh, going through all that process, and I kind of touched on it before, is if we were able to provide a greater speed of application, but also a greater accuracy of the information that's being used, and we stored that in a way that was an immutable um, record of the transaction, and we filtered all transaction data separately away from the real um, valuable data that goes through and the validated, valuable and validated data of that transaction. We now have the exact data set that's needed to more accurately and more um, efficiently report to the regulators around the mortgage data, which with all the challenges... Do you want to break that? Yeah. Down to the everyday English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some of the Absolutely. slower listeners. So, no disrespect listeners. Yeah, well, yes. The, um, I do get carried away with the jargon. Yes, but I can yeah. see you're very passionate about um, it and your mind's 10 steps ahead of if you look at, um If you look at the challenges that are are being faced in terms of regulatory management by um, organisations like APRA and ASIC mm -hmm. and um, reviews like the Royal Commission and others that, that have gone about. The common themes that have started to come out of that is the lack of reliability of data that exists around the decisions of making the, the an application um, valid or approved or declined. Right. And not only the... By, by the by the by the lender, yeah, the by the by the bank. Um, what was the customer's circumstance at that time, and how did you prove that? But what they're looking at as well as a regulator, and what the government is more interested in in terms of the um, the consumer data right that they've they've, they've moved on with, and, and sort of moving into open banking and open data, is what is the ongoing behaviour of somebody who has a significant debt lent against an asset and how is that impacting the economy overall in mm. terms of if there is a difference or a change in circumstances how quickly do we know about it how quickly are we reporting on it and adjusting the way that we service that customer and the overall um, market based on the changes of that behavior the way that that's traditionally been done um, has been on static information that has been recorded at a point in time mm -hmm. and some modelling is done on a sample set of data and then some assumptions are made based on what that sample set um, of data and the outcomes and the calculations and modelling has done. If you can look at that from a really simplistic way, if any of you think about when you last got your home loan um, and what your circumstances were at that time and if you fast forward five years in your life, could change jobs. Are your circumstances the same? Quite unlikely that yeah. that's the case. Do you tell your financial institution? Not unless you have to. How would they find that out? In terms of it being a responsible lending um, uh, sort of governance of, of you and, and the lending capabilities that you have or the financial, the lending responsibility that you have with the institution. Um, and and if that if you multiply you by how many loans they have in their portfolio. And if we're talking about any of the big four, they've got 100,000 loans or more at any one time active in their portfolio. And even if it's a small mutual bank or, or a second tier bank, you're talking about tens of thousands of loans that they're managing at any one time. Mm. If you think that anybody's um, circumstances have 
fallen by 20 or 30 percent or more so your income's fallen by 20 or 30 percent you've had a child you've had two children you've had twins you've got divorced you've got married all of those things um contribute to your capability of being able to repay a loan and the health of the portfolio overall yep all of the decisions around that to date because of the technical constraints of organizations have meant that we haven't been able to have real-time decisions made and adjustments made to the policy. And a great example of that is last year uh, or the year before when APRA brought in the um, differences in their assessment around investment home loans versus owner-occupied home loans and we saw the interest rates rise yep. for investor home loans based on some decisions that APRA were making around investments home loan and the impact that they were having on the economy. Now, it took um, a number of um, months, if not years, for that correction to happen. And then a report was released this year around how effective that was in terms of um, APRA's uh, decisions around uh, about their, their ideal state of what they wanted to happen from that. Um, it's questionable whether that, that has achieved what it was meant to achieve and, and how... How could we have made the right decision if we didn't have the real-time data around the portfolios? And so that's the other problem that we're really focusing on that we think is broader in terms of the trust and transparency um, philosophy that we really focus on is being able to provide not only real-time information during the home loan application, but ongoing real-time information about an individual or the portfolio's health. Hmm. Does that make a bit more sense? It does. It does. (laughs) It does. So, yeah, and and a lot of this technology, um, a, lot, a lot of what you're building rests on blockchain technology, yeah, which makes things a whole lot more transparent. Mm-hmm. Super. Um, who are the actual clients that are building, uh, that are buying this? Yeah. So we're a B two B solution. We deal directly with business financial institutions. Yeah. So yes, business business solutions. So, um, what we have um, decided as an organisation is. The the difference that we have in our in us as a company and in our technology is is really we look at it like an engine that drives capabilities with inside a financial institution to really change the way that they service customers. Mm. But we aren't someone a company that our technology's um, strengths aren't around really fancy customer interactive UIs or user interfaces. Yes. Um, so where we think that the strength lies is being able to sit either alongside or integrated in the technology stack of a financial institution. And they can then deploy that in any way that they want to be able to drive the capabilities out to the customer. So we can, we've got a, a, a user experience interface, our user interface, so that the technology can be used, but they can, what we call reskin it, so they can put their own technology on the top yep. of it, um, or that they, we can integrate with other ones that they're already using so that the smarts can happen in between the technology, but we drive out the capabilities. So you'll be completely changing business processes yeah and and culture and the way we have done things yeah quite remarkable yeah um we're going through a couple of uh, what we call discovery workshops with some clients at the moment and Mm. um part of what we do is that as the first workshop is stakeholder engagement so we don't even talk about the technology in the beginning um and the use of the word blockchain sometimes inside financial institutions can be a little bit challenging um in terms of getting over the getting the right people in the room so blockchain technology is one component Mm. of our overall stack um and we also only focus on just yep just for this person that 
doesn't actually know what blockchain is. In a nugget, what is it? Yeah, so blockchain is a is um it's a it's a beautifully simplistic capability um of, of technology that for the layman's term, for want of a better word, it is like a distributed ledger um, where you can have multiple people involved in. If you think of a spreadsheet, for example, um, yeah. and if we look at something if we even more sophisticated, a little bit more sophisticated than that, you've got an Excel spreadsheet uh, and then you've got perhaps a Google document that you can work on. So anyone that's involved in Google and things that you can work off in now, is, I think, called um, Sheets or Google Docs. And, yeah. Um, in an Excel spreadsheet, you can have one person working in that at one time, and we create lots of different versions of that as we send it around a group of people, which can create challenges as to which is the right version, yes. which is the source of truth, ultimately. Yeah, if we're just working off one that we yeah. email back as a So if we progress to sort of the Google suite capabilities, we can all be in the same document at the same time, and we can be working. So there is one source of truth, yes. but we still can save different versions. Um, based on the saving capabilities. With blockchain technology in a nutshell, we are creating only one version. It is impossible to create multiple versions of, yeah. of, of what we're doing because of the unique encryption capability. And we store things in blocks, hence the word blockchains, and mm -hmm. those blocks are linked together. Yeah. Um, so um, if we break it down into the home loan process, an asset block, for example, would contain the information that um, relates to the property. But where the way what blockchain enables you to do with smart contracts, which is to add another tech uh, term in there, is that you can create rules as to what is the information that is agreed to be to be correct for the asset block. And at that point in time, unless those rules are met, the information doesn't go into the blockchain or into that particular block. Yeah. If further down the process, so if we have an asset block, for example, and then we might have a valuation block and an income and employment and what have you, in, a, in, a, in the Excel spreadsheet version, I can only change one cell at a time. When I send it to you, you can change whatever cells you like and it can come back or I can make it a read only or, or what yep. have you, right? In the Google Documents version, we still don't have rules mechanisms in there around what can and can't be changed. Mm. In this version, not only does the asset block know about itself, it is aware of all of the other blocks in the in the chain. Yes. And if any information or is is entered into any of the other blocks that breaches the rules in any of the blocks before or after it, yes. it immediately creates a new chain and says the information now is not authenticated as per the version that we had before. And here are the reasons why, but now you can see the difference between chain number one and chain number two, chain number three, chain number four. And so that's the immutable audit trail that we're right. talking about. There is no overwrite capability. Mm. There's no he said, she said. In the no, exactly. So if we talk about that in the, in the landscape of compliance and risk management and also regulator reporting, this is exactly what they're looking for from that capability. Mm. And from a understand, if you take that concept that we just spoke about and you apply it to you as a person, if I had a set of information that the date that I did an application about me, my age, my family, my employment status, my what have you, every time that changes over a period of time, we now can see the landscape change as that happens and how it oh, iterates. And thus answering the regulation. Correct, problem. yeah. So the iteration capability, the story of that and why it's changed is the key component, we think, for financial services. And and we're, with 
if you just want to, everybody in sort of listening may have heard of things like cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. Um, that's one end of the blockchain spectrum. The same as you could have an Excel spreadsheet that manages your weekly meal planning, or you could have an Excel spreadsheet that manages a, a government department's budget. The complexity of the use case that you have for that technology is sort of almost infinite. Yeah. Um, and that's the same with blockchain. So Bitcoin and is, is one um, cryptocurrency and cryptocurrency is one use case. So if we talk about currency in today's world, the Australian dollar is one currency and paper-based money is one use case of yes. currency. But in currency, you can also have bartering or you could have swapping or you could have, you know, whatever. Wait, do you want to kind of understand? So. Yes. For us, we don't, we're not playing at that end of the spectrum. We're playing at a very, very different end, which is a private permission-based ecosystem where the bank is the owner of that ecosystem and is allowed to give permission to other actors in the ecosystem, whether it be the customer or the regulator, the valuer or the settlement agent, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. But they have special keys by which that they can participate and those keys are encrypted to decide whether they can read or write um, in terms of information and how long that accessibility is. Right. So it wasn't a nutshell, but <laughs> that's, that's the explanation. Because I've had a crack at this before on another <laughs> podcast and I'll be honest, I left it confused. <laughs> so that's, that's blockchain. That's set within the solution that you um, have put together. The solution is causing um, change, a change of paradigms mm. within the financial institutions that you are working with, which, you know, for me... Um, former management consultant of 15 years, that'd be very exciting. Because um, it's, yeah, it's changing culture, it's changing mindsets, it's making things more customer focused, yes. and stuff like that. How is it going to be before I, the everyday person, get to feel the benefit of what you're talking about? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. So, Because um, this sounds great. Yeah. Um, but... I'm not your immediate. I'm not your immediate client. Correct. Yeah. I will be indirectly become your client, or I become your client's. Well, I'm your client's client. Yes. Um, so when do I get to feel the joy? Yep. Um, the reality. Well, this, for us, um, the products are in market now, and mm -hmm. we're working with a number of banks in Australia uh, around testing and piloting their technology inside their environments. Mm. Um, we would, if I could deploy it tomorrow, I would, I would have it in production. But the reality of the engagement cycles and the way that large institutions work in terms of onboarding technology would mean that um, we need to go through proof of concepts with those organisations. Um, I, I joke with them that they have to date us and we have to date them. We're a, we're a fintech mm. startup and, and generally, traditionally, that means we've got to go through some pretty rigorous um, security, risk review, procurement and legal processes in order yep. for the technology to be deployed. Um, and so those engagement cycles are, are a number of months by the time that the technology can be tested in that environment and then rolled out. I would expect in Australia that we would see starting to see some financial institutions customers feeling the um, onset of that technology and um, within uh, 2019. Cool. And I think that with things like the open banking legislation coming into effect as of um, mid next year, comprehensive credit reporting starting to get some traction as well, um, that you will see that not only in our technology, but in broader technologies that are using uh, this direct call to sources of truth, changing the speed at which applications are being assessed and, and funded um, in 2019 into 2020. Awesome. Hmm. Awesome. Um, 
if we go back to when you decided to do this, was it a something that just tipped away or what was the epiphany point when you thought, right, I've got to let go of the wall and swim in the deep end and leave the career and, and go do this? Yeah. Because you know, we've just covered what it is and, and, and it's full applicability and this, that and the other. I'm curious about the human journey that's gone behind for Ruth. Yeah. So um, I think I mentioned at the beginning there was a number of really key influences yeah. at the beginning. So the, the way that um, what really spurred me on to... Um, talking moving from talking about the idea and yeah. researching the technology because we all have great ideas yeah. we all sit around a barbecue with a beer in our hand and we come up with oh and that would change the world yeah but how many people go do and this is why i was particularly keen about having you on the podcast because you've gone from mega idea to go do and doing and succeeding yeah so in the very beginning um so march 2015 i met um now my chief strategy officer jonathan mcdonald who is a international and global keynote speaker on disruption change and advises companies like ikea and google and some pretty big names and very probably one of the most intelligent and, and um just uh, the the most amount of foresight I've ever seen anybody have in terms of what the world could look like in the future and and how how the diff the the, the gap the chasm I guess between where we are now or the yeah. delta as you say between now where we are mm. now to where the world would be, um and so that really crystallised for me where the world was going technologically in other industries. And what that delta, I started to really understand what that delta looked like in the financial services sector. And um, it wasn't a hard stretch for me to think if it could be done over here, why couldn't it be done over, you know, in other industries? Why couldn't it be done in our industry? And that really niggled away at me. And, and so um, uh, actually, Jonathan had an interactive section at the end of uh, his keynote at the conference I was at, and it was around, you know, come and talk to me about what I speak about some more, et cetera, et cetera. And I said to him, I explained the problem in our market and the stats that I said to you before. And he said, have you heard of blockchain technology? And uh, of course I had not. Um, mm. And so I spent probably six months, as we were talking about before, the talk around the barbecue, the, mm. have you heard of this technology? Do you know what it does? Do you think that this is how I think it could be applied in our industry? And, and really starting to get some, testing some hypotheses around my assumptions versus you know what could happen. Um, and then I... Uh, and that's some, an interesting dance, that period, because yes. it's... Because it's the mixture, I find it's the mixture of taking on board people's views and opinions and then equally disregarding them. Yeah, and I think what, what I, where I came to the, the point of crystallization was I needed to decide who were the people that I trusted in terms of advice and who were the people that I was prepared to listen to their information but potentially not be swayed by. Mm. And that creating that filter mechanism was really quite a challenging also, process when i find that when you go into that process there's also you've also got to gauge where people how far away people's horizons are yes and and, and, and what's their motivation yeah and motivation and, and and their limitations in thinking in terms of imagination and what have you some a lot of people only go so far and it's like, oh, well, correct no you can't do cause... the suspension of disbelief um, yeah. was something that i asked people to do mm. uh yet i'm not sure a lot of people can yeah. do adequately mental spaciousness where you can bring a concept in and 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 put yourself to one side and just look and play and could this work yes it, you know and then 
bring it inside. Absolutely. And I found um, some people inside KPMG quite early on that were able to do that with us. Um, And I was, uh, a number of things started to sort of coincide, I guess. And one was I'd done some, um, some, some testing with a technology company that I um, wanted to help bring it to market in a sort of a prototype phase, given that I had no technical background, and and they had a really cool little product that they just bought in a start from a startup um, over in um, France actually, and and that seemed to really be able to have capability for me to to spin up a prototype relatively easy. Um, there was starting to be groundswell around open banking, comprehensive credit reporting. All of this capability was coming in terms of access to raw data, which would be the source of truth. Mm. Um, there was a requirement of the regulators in our industry to want a more granular level of detail and they're wanting it faster. So that was a, that was another kind of indicator to me that we needed to bring out something new that didn't exist today. And then the final piece was, as I was having some conversations with KPMG, they were starting to run an accelerator program over in um, Sydney, uh, which was going to be around matching 11 mutual banks with, or nine mutual banks with 11 fintech companies that could potentially have solutions that could solve challenges inside those financial institutions. And they didn't have a blockchain-based loan origination solution, and they were really interested in us being a part of that um, mm. of that process. And once I got the validation on that level, you know, we're talking about national to global consulting firms, national financial institutions, yeah. um, from a little girl in WA that had a little bit of money to put into, um, uh, you know, into something. And, and it was also a global technology company at that time that was interested in supporting the initial development of it. I kind of thought it was starting to be bigger than me and bigger than my, my thoughts and, and, and so it was went that was the leap that I took from how could a I'm not even tertiary educated so how could a girl from the country with you know no university degree create a solution that potentially could solve solve a global problem and I had to suspend I was I'd been asking people to suspend their disbelief mm. and at that point I had to suspend so my own um, and that was a I, I could not have done that if I didn't have Jonathan McDonald and um, now my chief strategy officer, uh, my chief operations officer, Melanie Jumeau, who interestingly um, is my best friend from high school at boarding school. So, um, you know, wonderful personal and mentor support and, and our um, now board advisor out of KPMG, a man called Graham Sheard, who um, is just really great in terms of nurturing startups and, and their thoughts. Mm. And those three together, along with the, the market validation that I got um, towards the end of 2015 is what what gave me the guts basically yeah. to take all that the money the every last cent that I had um, and with my parents support as well um, both financially and morally and and invest that in building the prototype to mm. take to the M labs program that that was really the key kickoff point for mm. me I really like this mm. point of suspending belief about yourself because you oh, to create a new version of Ruth absolutely that can do this yeah is on it is it there would there is no time in my life and even during 2016 i found it difficult to believe that i could be a ceo of a potentially global um technology company i i just i didn't i didn't have that on my radar at all um and and what's really become highly apparent to me is the level of domain expertise i had 
um, and the will to solve this problem from a morally and philosophically right place meant that um, there was no one better to do that yeah. within this construct, within this sort of, um, with this lens yes. than me at, at that point in time. Person, it took me 18 months to probably get to that point mm. where I could say those words out loud. But um, yeah, it was... It what was, did you have to let go and what did you have to bring in in terms of your thoughts and, and, and sense of identity about yourself to get yeah. to that point? Um, I've never really thought about that from a from a highly analytical perspective, but I needed to get the guts to walk into a room with a bunch of highly um, accredited and acclaimed executives of financial institutions and ask them to be daring enough to throw their current strategy potentially or push it aside. I yeah, to um, to then consider something that wasn't really on the radar for this budgetary cycle, but could significantly change the way that that bank did things with their consumers and also the strategic capabilities and commercial return in mm. the future. Um, and to say those words to people that were on significantly higher pay grades than me at that time was mm. something that I really had to, to, to consciously figure out how I could articulate myself where I felt that I belonged in that room. Um, and, and that, yeah, that, that took a lot of mm. practice. I, I, I won't lie to you. I practiced those speeches. I practiced those presentations. What I, was the first run out like? Oh, terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Exhilarating. Um, yeah. Look, I think, and what, what, what really accelerated my comfort around being able to do this, uh, is that the, the content that we spoke was very well received. So even though people, found it challenging to suspend their disbeliefs or to actually think that that could be something that they could put on this year's radar. It is very rare in the past three years, and in fact I can't think of a time, where people have said adamantly, this isn't what the industry needs or this isn't what our financial yep. institution needs. And in fact, um, along that journey, we have come in, in, come in to talk to financial institutions who are midway through a two, three, four-year mortgage origination transformation project that they've invested potentially millions of dollars in and, and hundreds of, of man hours in, and they haven't got to the place that we were we were in terms of what a solution could look like. Right. And those val those points of validation for me were really important to to kind of get the the confidence to walk into an institution and say we know that you've mm. been working on this, but in my organisation I've got nearly a hundred years worth of financial services experience, and about you know forty years worth of technical experience, and the people you've got working on those projects inside your financial institution collectively probably don't right. have that. Um, and, and that experience, coupled with the philosophical point that we come from in terms of, you know, being agnostic in our approach, uh, trust and transparency, connecting people with the truth, yeah. um, is a different lens than perhaps a corporate employee may come from. Yeah. Hmm. When, when did you pass the tipping point and what did that look like? Um, I think for me, yeah, the two point, I, I, I have two. Uh, one is um, 
when when we started to use all of my money and uh, <laughs> and we hadn't actually got our product to market at that point in time, I started to realize that we needed to raise money. I've never raised money in my life. It's hard enough borrowing pocket money off people when I was at boarding school, you know. So I was like, jeepers. Um, <coughs> and we weren't talking about raising a little bit of money. We're talking about, you know, millions of dollars. Mm. And so... I'd never gone to market for something like that. Um, and I sure as hell didn't think that someone was going to give me that amount of money, you know, on the, we hadn't had any, had no sort of, um, we didn't have any uh, signed up contractual customers at that exact time. We still had a platform idea and we had IP and we had an, a patent application lodged and we had a lot of indication and enthusiasm from the market. But yeah, it was, it was, that was, that was huge for me. Um, and when we were able to close out that capital raising round and beautifully, um, everybody that invested in us in that first round, there's a syndicate of investors that we have that um, are actually all business associates and friends of mine from my previous life. Um, and also a, a, an overseas investor that is um, a known associate of ours as well. And when they were so enthusiastic to to be involved in the company and want to be part of the journey and support our vision, that was a huge validation for me because it wasn't just the market saying, yes, we pay for what you're doing or yeah, your idea is good. Someone was like, you know what, I'm taking my life. So you put your life savings in, I'm going to put my life savings in as well. And that was, that was huge. Um, and that also meant that I could employ people and pay myself. So mm. at that point in time, I hadn't even paid myself. Um, and so, you know, that was a struggle as well, um, given my circumstances. So that was the first one. And then the next one, we spent um, eight months in conversation with HSBC Australia around, it's where we kind of pivoted from the loan origination platform, HomeChain, to our, our regulation platform, RegChain. And they were really interested in, in how that could solve some challenges inside their organisation. And when, um, I, I will never forget, we were going back and forth with a statement of work and I hadn't taken a holiday um, for, since I started the journey in 2015 and this was 2017, September 2017 and we were going back and forth with the statement of work and I'd, I had finally taken a few days off with my daughter over in Bali and um, they signed the statement of work and said that they would commence work the next week while we were in Bali. So I had to rechange my holiday and fly my daughter to, Bar to, to Sydney and we flew on the, the, the overnight flight I organised a, a babysitter to look after her, and we walked straight into the first kickoff workshop with, with HSBC. And and then when we did the, um, the wrap up uh, internal review of, with my own team, my daughter's in the middle of our meeting in the hotel lounge playing Lego while we're reviewing, you know, yeah. the the first um, workshop that we'd done with our pay, first paying client. And um, that for me was that exact moment. That picture is still extremely vivid in my head. That we were sit sitting in the hotel that we we now a highly uh, frequent residence of and we can see the towers of Barangaroo in Sydney out the window and I've got my daughter playing Lego on the ground and all of my team are not only reviewing the day's work but playing with my daughter and um, and I thought this I, that's I've created I've created exactly if we go back to the sort of very beginning of what we were talking about the mm -hmm. company's culture the philosophy of what we wanted to deliver the way that we wanted the technology to, to impact the community that we're dealing with and being able to involve my family in it at the same time was that was the reality or the crystallization of that dream come true. Hmm. How did you balance motherhood with all of this? Um, yeah, I, it's, I, I, uh, uh. yeah, <laughs> I have a, an interesting, I guess, a, 
that's matured my, my view around that the whole um, view that I had you know when I was in a PAYG job that you could create work-life balance and um, and I don't I don't actually I think that balance is actually around prioritization and yeah. I believe that you can only prioritize one thing in any one moment um, and so what I've learned is that um, being a parent whether it's a mother or father or you know being in any type of family construct um, there are always competing priorities. There is never a moment where you have non-competing priorities, I don't think. Um, and so for me, I've had to really consciously work through how do I achieve comfort with prioritizing things at certain points in time. And then in the moments when I'm with my daughter, that she is that priority and that she understands. Solid quality present time. Exactly. Children demand that. Yeah, exactly. But she also um, has come to understand that we blend parts of our life as well. So we've just come back from a holiday um, or a working holiday where I, a friend of mine flew to Sydney to help look after her for two days. Um, we're doing some wonderful work with Google at the moment and one of the wonderful guys in there um, gave her a private tour of Google so she got to go to her favourite place in the world being Google and, mm. and play with all that kind of stuff. A friend looked after her for two days and then I flew to my brother's farm in, in Orange and spent four days which was non-work, 100% dedicated to her and I and our family and and then now we're back here and, and, and back into it again. And that, that's, that's the best way that I can manage it in my mind is create moments where the priority that we've chosen at that time gets the dedication, the, the, the interest and the, and the focus. Um, but my daughter is the overarching number one priority in my life. So if there was a reason that I need to drop other things to be able to be there for her, then that is something that's that, at the top. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah. Where would Ruth have been if you hadn't taken the action to do Mother Catcher? Um, if you'd bottled it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, broke. <laughs> um, yeah, I think... Well, no, you'd have savings. Yeah, <laughs> well, maybe. Um, I think that I would be... I certainly wouldn't feel... I wouldn't have the energy that I have today in terms of being fulfilled in mm. really making a difference, and I mm. would have been searching for that. That was something that I was... No matter what had come along at that time, I would have been searching for... Mm. If it wasn't creating money catcher it would have been something else I was at a at a I guess a pivotal point in my life um and, and you know maybe some people buy fast cars and <laughs> and other people do other things but for me it was finding that way that I could make a difference and so I think I would have been searching for that um, and express yourself yeah yeah exactly and and I think um beyond that I haven't really thought about it um I've I haven't thought about the sliding doors situation hmm. um because I do honestly feel like I made 100% the right choice and I sh I'm doing exactly what I'm meant to be doing and that's probably a little bit corny mm. to say, but th that is what I feel. Mm. What have you learnt about yourself on this journey? Um, I've learnt that um, some of the <coughs> skills that make me really good at doing what I do are um, also some of the skills that are my vices. So um, I guess the biggest thing for me is I... vices. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the reason that I was able to move the company as quickly as we have during these processes and continue to iterate the products to be able to respond to market demand is because I think very quickly and I make decisions quickly. Um, but sometimes that leads to a level of impatience. And so I'm starting to really realize the correlation between 
the things that have allowed me to do what I do, but perhaps how the there is a negative impact or a different impact of that skill set in other um, situations. Um, and the other thing I've had to really learn is humility because the amount of times that we make mistakes yes. and things don't work yeah. in startup world is phenomenal. Yeah. And the ability to actually say to my team, I made the wrong decision yeah. to say to my daughter, you know what? Mum made the wrong priority today or yeah, just take uh, responsibility and take yeah. ownership of that. And to understand that that's not, a, that's not linked to guilt. So yeah. for me, that was a huge personal lesson and that came through meditation i never meditated in my life before this whole process and mm. um i don't think that i could have got through many moments without having that ability to pause and reflect without any decision being made whatsoever and that is not a natural thing for me mm. at all i'm constantly thinking and therefore constantly analyzing and making decisions and to be able to create that space of just awareness without bias or decision um, was a critical point or a critical key uh, behavior I had to learn in order to be better at all the other things that I was doing um, on this journey. Mm. How did meditation pop up then? Um, a number of different things. So the, the business friends I spoke to you about before that were now my syndicate, that we, we used to um, meet on a monthly basis and read different books. And we moved, we matured from just business books into sort of self-help books and then mm -hmm. into more reflective books like Dr. Wayne Dwyer's books and, um, you know, moving into flow and, and understanding about that. And, um, and then uh, the people that I now have in the organization, every single person has some type of meditative or yoga or Pilates practice that, that they do. Just they're the kind of people that have mm. gravitated to our organization. Um, and as I started to experiment with that a little more, I found that when I shared that with my daughter, which I never thought a six-year-old or a seven-year-old would be interested in, she loves it. She loves doing it together. So um, that really uh, motivated me to understand the impact of it and, and research the different capabilities You've got of an accountability it. Accountability buddy, there, haven't you? Yeah, <laughs> it's great. She's yeah, she's pretty cool. She's yeah. she's seven going on twenty seven, but she's yeah, she's. Delightful. Um, is that part of a, a daily routine or habits yep. that keep you grounded? What else do you do? Yeah, yep. So um, meditation is a huge part of my life. Um, so I, during the day and definitely every night. So most most nights, my daughter and I would do that together, which is really cool. And. Um, we also share hobbies together. So um, one thing that we love doing is going horse riding. So we do that uh, on a weekly basis. Um, and I find just any type of physical activity is really important for yeah. mental stability. So I find most of my good thoughts come on the treadmill or riding the bike around the river. So um, mm. that's something that I do a lot of um so and quite um, enduro based. Yeah, yeah. It's things that are um, I find that kind of um, aerobic and anaerobic, that, that type of exercise um, that is quite physical actually allows mental space. Um, while you're focusing on the task at hand being the physical activity, it allows your brain to go away and process your thoughts. Um, and I guess the other thing that I do is all of that scheduled in my calendar. So my calendar's highly scheduled. Um, I'm If it was left up to me, I'm not really that organized. Uh, if I don't have prompts and 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 mm. sort of tools that we use but i'm also very transparent with that calendar so my whole team sees my calendar and they see when i have those types of commitments and i encourage them to do the same so yep. most of my team have 
um, alternate interests that they have blending into their life. My, my chief technology officer is a lecturer at a university in Queensland and um, we, yeah, all, everyone's involved in sort of extracurricular stuff and we allow that to be blended into the workspace because they're better people because they're able to feel like that they're more fulfilled. Mm. Um, and so for me, being able to encourage and foster that is really important. And more recently, I've started to get involved with nurturing uh, university students and startup um, organisations here in Western Australia, which is lovely mm. to come back to my roots and do some stuff here. Mm. What does the next three to five years look like? Um, for us, we have, uh, from a money catcher perspective, so we are, are working through now our, our global expansion strategy. So there are other jurisdictions in the world where our technology is obviously suitable to go out to. Um, and at the same time, really being able to expand the footprint here in Australia to enable as many people in Australia to get the benefits of the technology that we have by connecting directly with the financial institutions. Um, we are interested in watching uh, what evolves in the open banking space uh, and how that will move across. We talk about Scott Morrison's um, uh, open data or the consumer data right that he brought in uh, earlier this year whilst treasurer and now uh, obviously as our prime minister. Um, I think that the financial services industry is the first to go. We were kicking that off with open banking. Um, and if that's done with the right lenses around um, you know, the agnostic approach, trust and transparency of data, consumer-centric, so the consumer first has the right to that data, it's free and accessible. Watching that expand over the different industries in, in, in Australia is going to be really, really um, good for us and our technology could follow that pattern. Um, but yeah, at the same time, there's also jurisdictions around the world that are totally uh, ready and, and needing this type of technology to be deployed over there. Awesome. Hmm. Personally? Well, I guess following that journey for the minute. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, doing more of the same. I think for us, it's just uh, being able to be where I need to be in order to enable the team to do the best that they can mm. um, to deploy those strategies that, that we've agreed to, both from a board level and from an executive level. And, and beyond that is being able to find those moments, you know, find those moments with my family and, and with my friends and, and enable that comfort around those priorities at the right time. If you could go back and give Ruth in 2015 a piece of advice from now, what would that be? I think it really would have been around the um, confidence and faith in my capabilities um, and and not spend you know the first part of this journey in a constant circle of doubt um, because what we had really really was what I thought it was and and any even more that would be the biggest piece and for any startup is is really having that confidence in yourself to execute. But at the same time, being humble enough to listen um, and you have to be able to adapt to market demands and also um, your inner, create that inner circle and listen to, to, to their advice. And, and if, if you've created the right inner circle who have your best interests at heart and the, the, your solution's best interests at heart, you need to be able to be open um, to, that. To, to that, yeah. Mm. And final question is, um, if you could impart a little nugget of wisdom into the collective consciousness just to make life everything a bit easier, what would it be? I think it really sits around the theme of humility, is, is around the, the ability for 
any human to stop and pause and reflect on a decision a situation before making a decision allowing space for thought um and i think that if that is enabled more often in many more situations i think that we will come to have better iterations of solutions of decision making of um pro- progress in society uh the ways that we treat each other the mm. way that we deploy things commercially it's just having the the ability to pause and reflect so i guess that, that's kind of a humility but it's maybe it's adjacent to that it's the ability to pause and reflect without thought yes form a thought and then be willing to share the thought without a decision being made. Mm. And if we were able Which is to what we were talking about back in that discovery phase. Yeah, if we were able to break decision making down to that on every level, the way that you, tr- you interact with your children, the way that you interact with your family, your colleagues, your coworkers, the person at the shop, the person you're angry at, you know, in the in the your person you want to have road rage with when you're driving on the road, if if we adopted that thought mechanism, um, I think we would have some different results. Indeed. Yeah. Ruth, it's been absolutely fascinating talking yeah, to you today. Yeah, thank you. It's, um, it's an amazing journey that you've been on. It's amazing to listen to your own journey within the journey, if that makes sense. Um, I'm super excited about seeing how your technology actually comes back and in, impacts the everyday person. I'm looking forward to that advert that will inevitably turn up on the TV <laughs> of one financial institution that says... Hey, remember how it used to take 42 days? Now it's an hour and a half. And we will now know why and who's behind that. And I look forward to that. But I also thank you for sharing the whole journey because there are so many people out there who have amazing ideas that can shake and create a new different world. And it's just, it's great to be able to listen to somebody's journey of how they've actually gone and done it. And I hope that in a year or two's time when this is, globally spread out you'll come back and tell us how the rest of it's gone i'd love to thank you brent indeed okay. and where can we find you if somebody wants to dig in and find out a bit more about you you can just and, google and me but... Google <laughs> um, but yeah no uh we're um mcapture.com so yeah it's just google money catcher and you'll find us indeed ruth thank you very Thanks, much Brent. thank you cheers <laughs>